When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What does it mean if fire is your ally? Fire is this volatile thing that is hard to control, that is sort of hypnotic. It functions by destruction so that from the ashes something new can exist. That's sort of where my area of reflection was. Like, what is it to live with all of that inside you? And when do you have to dampen that? And when do you learn to trust that? Welcome back to another episode of West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast, where we're currently in the thick of covering House of the Dragon. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined each week by my wonderful co-host, Lauren Morgan. Mm-hmm. Lauren, we are now on episode six of the show. This is a major moment. Are you ready to dive in? I am totally ready to dive in. Let's let's dive in like Scrooge McDuck hitting a bunch of coins in his his vault of money. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> We're going to run with that. Usually we'd like to start off each episode by talking about the latest developments in the larger Game of Thrones universe. But this week, at least, you know, from this time that we're recording this podcast episode right now, there's not much going on in the realms. So we're going to dive right in to episode six. For anyone listening in, Elsewhere, I mean, our ground rules remain the same. I'll repeat them here in case this is your first time. In this first portion of the pod, we're just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective. And that means for our purposes that anything that's aired on the series up to this point, including in episode six, as well as anything that's been mentioned in the press is fair game to talk about. In this section, we'll only bring in the books if it helps answer basic questions like who the heck is that guy in that corner over there. Then later, we'll be switching it up to talk about House of the Dragon as it relates to George R.R. Martin's books and where this is all taking us in the bigger picture. So fair warning to anyone who's looking to avoid any kind of book spoilers. And the final portion of the podcast will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, I'll be sharing my interview with Emma Darcy, who plays adult princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. This interview was conducted back in June during my reporting for EW's House of the Dragon set visit and cover story. Now, on to episode six. Lauren, I said it was a big moment, and that's because there's a major change on this show. Oh, so finally, finally, we get to see Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook take on the roles of Renera and Alicent. It is, we've been watching Millie Alcock and Emily Carey for the last five episodes. They've done a great job. And I know a lot of people were sad to see them go, but I think both Olivia and Emma just knock it out of the park in this episode so i was super happy to like uh, you know i was curious like the shift between them but i think as soon as i saw both of them i was like ah that's renera that's allison like i didn't feel like they skipped a beat in terms of their portrayal how did you feel about it 
Yeah, I mean, it was definitely bittersweet. We're all kind of pouring one out for Millie and Emily. I think they did a great job. But as all of kind of the actors, all four of these actors have said in the past, you know, adult Rhaenyra and Allison are very different from young Rhaenyra and Allison. I mean, yes, there are kind of certain nuances that kind of carry over, but neither sets of actors talk to each other. Neither of them strategize with each other about how to kind of link their roles or make two sets of parallel performances, nothing like that. And that's because a lot happens sort of in the time jump between episode five and episode six. We are now 10 years after the events of episode five and that tragic <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Game of Thrones wedding that we had. And kind of typical for Westeros, it seems. Oh, 1000%. And now we're at a time where we see Emma in the role of Rhaenyra, Olivia in the role of Alicent. Just kind of a note for anyone listening, Emma Darcy identifies as non-binary and uses they-them pronouns, and we're going to be respectful of that. We know them from their work on Amazon's series like Truth Seekers and Hannah. And then Olivia Cook, we know from her roles in films like Ready Player One and Thoroughbreds, and she also starred on Bates Motel. After this time jump too, you know, it's important to acknowledge that Viserys, Patty Considine's characters, he's still alive. There were some people who haven't read the books who are worried that he might have died sort of at the uh, when he collapsed at the end of episode five. He's still kicking, falling apart, but still kicking. <laughs> like, he's still kicking. But Lauren, I mean, like his health is literally falling apart. He's he's starting to look like the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> you know, he's really not a hale and hearty <laughs> man at this point in his life. Now, you and I kind of watched this episode, an early ver- an early cut of this episode with like in- in- incomplete visual effects. And you pointed out something <laughs> that I completely missed in that. What, with, uh, with regards to Viserys, what was that? Yeah, so this episode, when we first saw it about like four or five weeks ago, had very, the, most of the FX stuff was not there. And there's a scene later on we're going to talk about, Lena, where, it, where the screen was just in completely black and said, temp FX. But in this scene, the first scene where you see Viserys and Patty walks in, his entire left arm is completely coated in like a green sock, which anyone who knows FX work is usually what they do when they're going to remove something. So the first time we saw it, I saw oh, what's going to happen to Viserys' arm since it's an entirely coated? And I know we had the gaff a couple weeks ago where there, we saw the two green fingers that they hadn't removed at the time. But yeah, the, the entire arm was was going. And so when we saw the, the new version of this, when we finally got to see the uh, FX work on it, uh, the first thing I looked at was Patty's arm. And I was like, oh, it's totally gone. That's why he had a green sock on his arm. Yeah, and of course, this is all totally symbolic. I mean, this is all stemming from that cut he received sitting on the Iron Throne. Um, There's been so many references to just like being eaten alive, like a vulture. We've seen a lot of rats just kind of lingering in the peripheral, kind of looking for scraps of food. And this is all very symbolic about how the weight of the crown and the, uh, the power of the Iron Throne is just eating away, literally, at Viserys at this point. But in terms of the two big players who come into this, Emma and Olivia, I agree with you. I thought this was the best episode to date of the show so far. What do you think? I definitely thought so. And I think especially with Allison, like I did, as I said last week, when I saw Emily and on all the episodes together, I was kind of feeling like I wasn't feeling Allison. I wasn't feeling Allison. Uh, and then it re- improved on the rewatch, but I have to say, as soon 
as Olivia took over the role, and especially in this episode, I was like, there's Allison. That's the, that's the lady I remember from the book. So like, I think Olivia had such a clear idea of how she was going to portray Allison that like, I felt like all of the Allison scenes really just snapped into sharp focus in this one. And I have to say with uh, Emma's first scene is a stunning first scene for a character, like for an actor and a character. Cause you know, she's giving birth to her third child and it is just like such a knockout scene from them in terms of what they do in that scene. And, uh, and just exact. And, and that scene is so good about just setting the stage of where Rhaenyra's and Allison's relationship is at this point, because as soon as like Rhaenyra has given birth and she's exhausted and everything. One of her handmaidens comes in and says, or ladies in waiting comes in and says, the queen wants to see the baby. And she's immediately like, I am not sending this baby by by themselves because Lord knows what this woman will do to my baby. So I thought that was very kind of almost chilling in terms of how exactly how bad this relationship has deteriorated. I was particularly struck by this opening sequence of events. This episode, just for everyone's awareness, written by Sarah Hess, who's an executive producer on House of the Dragon, and it's directed by Miguel Sapochnik. This opening sequence is filmed in two uninterrupted tracking shots. The first is really a close-up of Rhaenyra in a childbirthing bed, giving birth to her third child, as Lauren mentioned. And then the second one is Rhaenyra's late march to the queen's chambers after she's been summoned to present her newborn babe the first thing that kind of stuck out to me was the likeness of rainera in this moment to the late queen emma uh, like that just that kind of just wrenched at my heart especially after their relationship and everything they talked about how rainera didn't want to have the same fate as her mother just be kind of you know chained to a childbirthing bed and churning out airs, um, which I thought was very poignant. What about you? Yeah, and then you all, but you also see Renera has she has given birth to three healthy, strapping sons. Though exactly who the father of those sons is is going to cause a lot of issues. But like you know, Renera, she did not have the issues that her mother had. She had three healthy, very strong sons. So if, you know, if only her mother had had that fate you know, a lot of this chaos will would not have happened. I love this scene based on something that you said, which is how we get to see the relationship between Rhaenyra and Alicent. I kept thinking back to how these birthing moments are kind of are addressed in the book, Fire and Blood. And it's really a lot in comparison to Alicent. I mean, the book makes a note to be like, oh, these births like really weighed Rhaenyra down physically and made her pudgy and she never recovered her womanly figure. Yeah, she she was stocky and, you know, the idea that she was once the realm's delight was, you know, a, a far off tale. And I'm like, I don't know, Emma still looks pretty good to me. So yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And then um, like, you know, subsequently the book also makes a point to be like, oh, but Allison, I mean, sh- her figure yeah, is always still... slender. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just <laughs> this. I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, it's so perfectly illustrates just kind of this era, this patriarchy, this telling of events through the male gaze in the books. And now we're kind of getting both of these women's perspectives which I thought was so cool. Another thing I wanted to point out about this sequence before we kind of get into kind of the details of everything is you really get an idea through these two tracking shots just how interconnected all of these sets 
R. This was filmed on a stage at Leesden Studios in the UK. I've seen it myself. I've got to kind of walk it, walk up the stairs. And you really can start in that little courtyard area, walk out the doors, up the stairs to the left, uh, along the balcony passageway and into a completely different room. And it's like, that's how interconnected all of these sets were. I love when you see like how much craft that people put into it and when sets are really functional in that way, because I think it helps the way that storytellers can tell the story if they know that they can just follow these characters through a whole entire path. And it really just sets the stage of, you know, how, how this whole entire, this the Red Keep is sort of set up for them. So I think that like I loved those tracking shots and in the, and it really emphasized how painful this was for Renera at this point to like have having just given birth and you know having to like try and make this walk which you know and and if you hadn't given birth you wouldn't even think about it but like just the fact that she had just given birth and it's like every step was kind of painful and I did notice in one of the later scenes when she's walking back with Lenore when they're walking back to their rooms that you can see a trail of blood on the floor from where she's been and you're just like oh my god like I, I didn't notice that the first time we watched it but I noticed it the second time that she's just trailing blood throughout the entire Red Key and it's a trail of blood that ends with Sir Kristen Cole, who for some reason, can we just talk about this for a second? I mean, we've talked about, I mean, this is a very minor spoiler from the books, but as, as I, I believe you and some of our guest hosts mentioned in previous episodes, Kristen's killing of Joffrey Lawnmouth, that happens during attorney event in the context of the books. And yes, it's still gruesome. Joffrey still dies, but he dies on his in a bed like days later this is a much different context like not only does he kill you know the sworn protector to the future king consort he punches that future king consort in the face in front of everybody including the king and yes i understand that queen allison is the one who kind of saves him and during the time jump you know personally requests him to become her personal sworn protector but come on i mean how yeah i really would i like you would have gotten kicked out of like killing somebody an attorney that happens like killing someone during their like rehearsal like uh, the friend of the the future king consorts like his friend during their wedding rehearsal that's an entirely different thing like he should have probably gotten kicked out of the king's guard for that one oh yeah that's just bananas yeah and especially given what happens with harwin strong in this episode after he beats the shit out of Kristen, which i love to see it (laughs) (laughs) break some bones break bones like come on i'm just like are you kidding me like Kristen gets to keep his job but i'm sorry you're banishing this man away i i don't know okay so let's kind of talk a little bit more about some of the big reveals in this episode. So Rhaenyra's child was summoned by the queen immediately after taking his first breaths because there is a question of legitimacy. In episode five, Rhaenys Laenor's mother warned Lord Corliss that they were putting their child in danger by marrying him to Rhaenyra, knowing that he's gay. And this is one of those dangers kind of, you know, showing its face. All three of Rhaenyra's children, Jaceris the eldest, Luceris the middle child, who we will come to know them as Jace and Luke kind of moving forward, and now baby Joffrey. None of them are Laenor's biological children. They are all bastards of Harwin Strong, 
along Breakbones, who is now the new commander of the City Watch. I don't know if you caught this, Lauren, but I, I believe it's Viserys who says after he kind of meets baby Joffrey for the very first time, he has a pun and he says, oh, there's a strong family resemblance. And I'm just like, I love <laughs> yeah. a pun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think like that's the one thing about like, you know, the fact that the change in the book that like Lenor is now biracial where he wasn't in the book. And now it's just like, you really know that these are not his kids. Like before it's like, yeah, maybe they're dark haired Tar- Targaryens. But this time you're like, oh yeah, those are not his babies at all, <laughs> you know? But I, what I thought was really interesting though is that he, Lenor and Harwin seem to be kind of copacetic about it. Like, Lenor didn't really seem to care that those weren't his kids. Like, he handed over the baby to Harwin when Harwin wanted to look at it. He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I wonder why you're interested. And like, they seem to have like this kind of pretty copacetic understanding. And I was just like, everyone just needs to leave these people be. Because if these two dads were fine with it, then everyone just needed to butt out. <laughs> so I, I know it's the most functional. I, what, I know what this is the most it? functional marriage here. <laughs> like, you know, everybody knows what they're in there for, you know, and, and it's like they, they've, they've got a my two dad situation going and, you know, everyone seems to be happy and, you know, Leonor can go off and do whatever the heck he wants. And <laughs> just was like, man, Allison just needs to butt out of this because this is working. You know, this is fine. And I know it. And now Lenor has a new man, Sir Carl Corey. And we know from the books that Sir Carl was a household knight at Driftmart. That's how Lenor first met him. And we know now through the show that Sir Carl has been fighting at the Stepstones because that place has been left undefended for a very long time. And it's now riddled with pirates again. And the whole kind of controversy and conflict has kind of reared its head. But yeah, so I mean, it's something that I thought was interesting is like, yes, the queen and all of her supporters are the ones who are spreading all of these rumors about the legitimacy of Rhaenyra's children. But at the same time, like you said, it seems like everybody kind of knows about it. Even Damon and Lena, who we're going to get to a little bit later on in this discussion. I mean, they joke from they joke to each other. They're like, oh, I heard from Lena. Or, oh, did he mention like the latest uh, Harwin Strong kid? Or Yeah. Did, did he mention he sus- the child suspiciously looks like Harwin Strong? And it's just like everyone knew it. You know, if Lena was fine with it, everybody just needs to back off because he seemed to be fine. And, you know, he was he was cool just being like the adoptive dad yeah so it's like everybody just needs to butt out i did get the impression watching this though and maybe it's just my own personal read of it i get the impression that given all of this context that rainier and lanor got a little too comfortable with their arrangements yeah it seems like they did because uh, the thing is it's like it did not seem like Rhaenyra and Harwin were hiding this at all like they were being pretty bold about it and you would think at least for the first child, you would make sure that this is a Valerian because that first child is supposed to be the heir to the Iron Throne. If a couple of your later children start to look like Harwin Strong, who cares? But that first kid's really gotta be like, or maybe the heir and the spare have to really be from House Valerian. But like, they all seemed like they got a little too comfortable with this arrangement and they didn't quite do what they needed to do to protect themselves properly. Uh, with this because you know if if jace really did look like could have been the child of lanor and renera then 
you know, they would have had to back off because he would have, you know, she she gave birth to three strapping boys. And no one is more pissed about this than Queen Alicent. Little busybody. I mean, I think she she has a line that I think perfectly encapsulates like where she's coming from. She turns to Sir Christian and she says, after you know, Sir Christian calls Rhaenyra a cunt, you know, excuse my language. <laughs> but Allison turns to him. Oh, he already knows that he fucked up by saying that word. And she says to him, I have to believe that in the end, honor and decency will prevail. And so like she, her main offense is the fact that she's been doing everything in her mind right. She's been a lady, as I said before, you know, she's been doing her duty and, you know, with a man who's falling apart. Never stepped out of line, just gave the king a bounty of children, mostly male heirs. And here's Rhaenyra, who seemingly gets a free pass, is able to kind of do whatever she wants, can have um, a gazillion bastard children with Harwin Strong and nobody bats an eye. And I think that's where, you know, she's kind of coming from in this situation. Although she does really have, she calls them savages at one point. And I'm just like, oof, oof, that's not going to age well, Queen Alice. I <laughs> know. <laughs> she's just like, she's just all up in her own, you know, as Allison. I thought this was really interesting uh, in the progression of Allison's character where you could see that little goody two shoes thing um, you know, 10 years ago, but she's just really gotten into her own sanctity and her own, I am the pinnacle of everything that is moral and good. And this little tramp is, you know, just pouring about the red keep. And, and you could really just tell she's kind of bought her own belief in herself and what's right and what's noble. You know, towards the end of the episode, really, she w- makes a really terrible mistake trusting the wrong person and can't be also such a holy roller after that. And this anger and frustration that she feels that's been building up for years and years and years, we can already see it kind of spilling out before we get to the kind of the major action of this episode. I mean, there's a small council sequence where, you know, she gives a suggestion about what they should do. Rhaenyra gives the very opposite suggestion. And of course, they side with Rhaenyra. And she gives us like, ugh, of course, and sips from her wine like Cersei. Like, she's really (laughs) just kind of fed up with the fact that, yes, she's queen. And yet all of this work that she's put into being queen ultimately means nothing in the face of all of these men around her. Meanwhile, Rhaenyra kind of gets this free pass. And just the fact that they were both on the small council and like, that's just a structure for chaos. Cause like you have these two people who just completely hate each other on it. And, you know, and a King who just seems to be out to lunch half the time. And, and, and this is, I think it's an interesting to see Viserys over the last 10 years. It's like, he's just trying to go along to get along. He doesn't particularly care that Rhaenyra's children don't look like the person they're supposed to look like. And, you know, he he uh, says that whole entire speech about the chestnut mare that he had from the, like, you know, he's like, genetics, what a weird thing, you know, that kind of (laughs) aspect of it. But he's like, he's just allowed this thing to fester with, like his his wife to just kind of fester like this. And he never like sort of sat her and told her like, hey, you got to knock it off. She's the heir to the Iron Throne. I know you don't like it. He tries and and Rhaenyra actually tries in that small council meeting to try and paper over the, you know, she, you know, offers her son to get married to Helena Viserys and Alicent's child and even, you know, offers a, a 
uh, an egg from Sirax as well. And, you know, Viserys is like, sure. And Alicent's like, not over my dead body. Oh, I love that line. You can do you can do what you wish when I am cold in my grave. Oh, my <laughs> yeah. God. So good. Okay, so let's get into the children of Alicent and Viserys. One quote that still sticks out in my mind from interviewing Olivia Cook that makes me it just sends me into fits. I absolutely love it. She says all her kids, meaning all of Allison's kids are fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They're totally weird. They are so weird. So the first one that we kind of meet is of course, Aegon the second Targaryen. He's played in this instance in this episode as a teenager by Ty Tennant. Lauren, why might people know of Ty Tennant? Ty Tennant is the son of Doctor Who, the 10th Doctor David Tennant and his wife uh, Georgia Tennant, who happens to be the daughter of the 5th Doctor Peter Davison. So he has two Doctor Who connections um, <laughs> in this. So he is playing, I didn't realize that until you mentioned what his last name was because I hadn't looked it up. And then I was like, oh man, he is kind of Doctor Who royalty and he is in House of the Dragon and has quite a uh, interesting opening scene or or like one one of his scenes is quite a it's like whoa that's kind of an interesting scene so i know so that scene i mean going back to what olivia cook says about her children being fucking weird i mean we <laughs> see aegon butt naked masturbating outside the window of his chambers i'm just oh that is some Ugh, icky. <laughs> That's some like real icky Targaryen stuff. And maybe like through these children, we're going to kind of get into them of the more, you know, seedier aspects of Targaryen history because this family is at the end of the day very messy, very weird. Incest run amok. Like it's just ugh, all over the place. But back to the children. The, the next child we meet is actor Leo Ashton playing Aemond Targaryen. I don't know about you, Lauren, but I found it interesting to going back to George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood to see how Aemond is described there. He's described as half the size of his brother Aegon but twice as fierce. And yet in this context in the show, we see how Aegon and Aemon's cousins like really pick on him. He's currently dragon. He's currently a dragonless Targaryen, which is, you know, a rarity for this family. And these boys taunt him by dressing up a pig and presenting it to him as the pink dread, as they call it. And then later, of course, Aegon is like explaining himself to his mother. And he's like, no, Jason Luke made me do it or whatever. So you're already getting the sense that these kids are fucking weird. But then also, <laughs> like, there is such a strange relationship between them and their mother. I mean, do you want to talk about this scene with Alicent and Aegon when she's like, you are going to be king? Basically, she, you know, it's a teenager's worst nightmare. Your mother comes in while you're doing something. And <laughs> so he's basically trying to, like, cover himself up. And she yells at him for the whole prank with Aemond and, and the pig. And it's interesting, though, because in the book, they sort of mention that Allison's children and Rhaenyra's didn't really get along. But here you kind of see that Aegon kind of gets along with Jason Luke, that they kind of like, you know, they'll play pranks on his brother and stuff like that. And they seem to have sort of a good sense of humor with each other. So it's kind of interesting to see how that 
perhaps might turn. But basically, he's just like, I'm not the heir to the throne. And she's just forcing it onto him that he's just like, like, he seems like he has no interest in being the heir to the throne. Uh, You know, he seems like he'd rather just get back to what he was doing on the window ledge. And she, at this point, has really bought into the idea that Rhaenyra is going to kill her children, even though she doesn't seem to like her children, because she like, it's interesting, all of her interactions with her children, and especially the one when she was with Helena, who was going through the bugs and kind of quite quietly talking to, you know, about these bugs. Another and weird Allison, fucking child. Yeah. And Allison, <laughs> Allison was just like, how fascinating, how fascinating. And honestly, I'm, I'm a mother. I understand sometimes when your kids do these things and you're like, yeah, it's really fascinating kid. But you like it's just interesting throughout the course of this show that they have shown how uncomfortable Allison is with motherhood. Like she's she does it doesn't seem like she has taken to it naturally, which is fine because she's just sort of trying to force her kids into these situations that like she's like trying to force Aegon into this thing he doesn't seem to be interested in. And I did notice though, especially in this episode, when you see Renera with her own children is she's much more tender with them. And it seems like she is much more motherly towards them. And when she was like cradling Joffrey and like talking about like him taking a bath and it's just like, you could sense there's a lot more tenderness between Rhaenyra and her, her children than, than Allison has for her children. And honestly, it does seem like Rhaenyra's children are, are, are a little bit more normal and just, you know, they're just lads, you know, just like, you know, like their father, you know, they're just, normal normal kids just you know but they're they also are, are, are all dragon riders so even if they are harman strong's kids they're both jace and luke are dragon riders at this point and aemon who is supposedly pure blood so i know that there's that's that's probably also complicating matters and and aemon just seems like he just seems like you know when they joke about the the flipping of the coin he just seems like he landed on the bad side so <laughs> it just seems like immediately you're like that's a bad one. Yeah. I mean, Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik have both, these are the two co-showrunners of House of the Dragon, by the way. They both described the Dance of the Dragons, which is the civil war that's going to be coming on the show very soon, as a generational war. And I think it's so interesting to look at this episode in the context of generation. Aegon, for instance, is around the same age that Alicent was when Otto Hightower, her dad, came to her and was like, you need to go to visit Sarah's chambers and console him in his time of grief, which of course was the very first kind of puppeteering mastermind move to marry Alicent to Viserys and kind of start this whole kind of drama within the court. And now Alicent is coming to her son sort of in a, in a very similar capacity and is like, you are going to be king. People expect you to be king. And he has a very different response. And I, you know, probably because he's male and he doesn't have the same pressures weighing him down as Allison did when she was a young girl, where she felt like duty bound to her family to do this for her house. Meanwhile, Aegon's off <laughs> masturbating out. <one laughs> yeah. And the thing is also, it's sort of like there have been in Targaryen history, there were like, you know, Jaehaerys had like, 13 children or something like that. There have been like, you know, lots of Targaryens just sort of hanging about. And, you know, I'm pretty sure if Alicent decided to play nicely with Rhaenyra, she wouldn't have killed, you know, she wouldn't, you know, this idea that, you know, as soon as Rhaenyra comes to power, she's going to kill Aegon. It's like, well, if you play nicely with him, you know, you could have probably, he could have probably just gotten a nice castle or, you know, 
oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, she, if they played their games right, it's just like this sort of adversarial thing where it's like, yeah, you're kind of engineering the doom here because you're just constantly picking on things that don't need to be picked on. So it's just kind of an interesting thing when she was talking about that. And I was just like, Aegon's just like, I'm not, you know, she's my aunt, whatever, I'm cool. So a few things happen in this episode in fairly quick succession. We've kind of talked about how like this very specific time that they're all in, how certain things have been happening to kind of set the ball into motion in a very big way. And then something happens. Harwin Strong beats the shit out of Sir Kristen Cole and the training grounds, which uh, was also a moment that happened after a certain buildup. I mean, first Kristen was favoring Allison's children and shunning Rhaenyra's children during the training sessions. Then he decides to pit Aegon against the much smaller Jason combat. And then finally, Kristen insinuates out loud that Harwin is the real father of Rhaenyra's children. And he loses it in a moment of weakness and attacks him. I mean, you can even see on Kristen's face that he's not even putting up a fight because he knows he won by doing that. But the thing is, he should have been kicked out of the King's Guard for this behavior. Like, this is not, you know. Oh, absolutely. Which also begs the question, I mean, well, here's the the only thing I'll point out. Because Kristen had Alicent in his corner, even though that still doesn't make sense to me, but I whatever, I'm just going to go with it. But Rhaenyra can't really come to Harwin's defense because if she did, she would only be exacerbating the rumors and like giving them more credence. So I understand why he was banished from the City Watch as a result of this. And also Lionel Strong, Harwin's father, who's currently the Hand of the King, announces to Viserys and Allison that he's resigning from his position. He says there's a shadow hanging over his house and it only keeps getting bigger. This was an interesting moment because one of my theories was that maybe he did this because Alicent pressured him to do it. Because there are certain things that she says where she is clearly guiding him through his resignation speech to Viserys. She's like, you need to make your reasoning plain, Lionel Strong. And he's like, I can't. Which makes me think that there was outside pressure to kind of boost, like, boot him out of the role. I think she just, she just really wanted to get the evidence out in the court of, you know, of of the Viserys's court, where she's just like, I want someone to say on the record that these children are bastards. So I can, you know, it's, it's like she wasn't letting anything hang. And you're just like, Asim's being such a bitch in this thing. Or she was just like, no, I think you need to tell us why. And Lionel's like, no. And then Viserys is also like, no. So. No, that is such a good point. And I, I, I like that take of the situation a little bit better. And now... Viserys does not accept Lionel's resignation, which pisses off Alicent yet again, because again, no one is listening to her. And it leads to a moment where she has a dinner with Laris Strong. Do you want to talk about this moment, Lauren? Yeah, so this is our news director, Jillian, laughed when I called someone the numbnut. I called Kristen the numbnut of the week last week. Uh, and so I'm going to say that Allison's the numbnut of the week this week <laughs> for trusting, for just deciding that Laris was someone she should be confiding in. Because it's like at every turn, and this is like Laris didn't really pop in the book. And it's it's interesting to know that George 
R.R. R. Martin has had a quite a say in the making of this thing because you get to see, oh, this is what George was really thinking about Laris all along. But it, it was just in Fire and Blood, it, it wasn't quite revealed. So you know that this is, you know, this is basically coming from George. This is what Laris was up to. But I was just like, Alicent, he was the one who told you about the moon tea. Like he has just been manipulating you all along. And I do want to know what happened at the strong family dinners where Laris is just like, yeah, my dad and my brother kind of hate him and you're just like what because it seemed like they had a decent relationship but i'm like what is going on here with this man and so he basically you know he's just manipulating allison all over the place here and it's just sort of like and it seems like they've been having these dinners for like the last 10 years because there is a, a, a sense of familiarity between these two where he started eating before she did he started drinking the wine and you're just like this is the queen like most people would be standing on ceremony but he is at least close enough to her that he do- does not have to so that i think that just suggested what kind of intimacy was in this relationship what did you think about that scene yeah i thought it was i mean there is 10 years is a long time to just kind of drop people you know back into the story but i really like this scene because as you mentioned like you get the impression that they've been having these dinners for a very long time and it makes what laris does next feel a lot more calculated because he is clearly trying to get allison comfortable with him enough so that he gets to a certain point where she now owes him not really a debt but like he has her under his thumb yeah and basically like now he knows that what the the stunt that he pulls off with his brother and his father like he knows she has culpability in this because she has been meeting with him so you know she's in real deep water that she didn't realize she was like she didn't realize she was how how deep the water she was swimming in and it also plays into the fact i think emily carey and olivia cook have talked about this also it plays into the fact that you know allison is very lonely she really only has laris strong and sir Kristen cole as like her main confidants i mean yes like she has other supporters kind of throughout the court but as emily carey's version of the character said in an earlier episode it's like people only see me the queen and want to use me for like certain things to like advance their own you know self-interest somehow so it really does emphasize that she's lonely she's trying to reach out to people and it just so happens that two of the most heinous people on this show are the people who she reaches out to and all her children are fucking weirdos so she can't talk to them about any of these things like you just wonder like if helena was kind of like just maybe a regular you know regularly young lady there might have been an outlet for allison to talk to but you know helena's kind of in her own world seems to have that targaryen prophecy gene allison is just she just looks at her kid and is just like, I don't know what to do with these children. And she reminds me a little bit of Lucille Bluth, where she's like, I don't like God. <laughs> like, you know? And another th- interesting thing that Olivia Cook noted about the Allison role is that, I mean, she had these kids, she started having these kids at a very young age. So it's almost like these kids are close enough in age that they could be like her sibling. And she kind of saw that it was, she didn't interpret it as sort of a mother you know, child relationship, but more as like a sister and sibling kind of relationship. Or like what the what the oldest child, the oldest, I know people who are like the oldest of many kids and like the oldest one always sort of takes on that kind of sisterly role instead of like the motherly, you know, kind of that aspect of it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to get into what Lara Strong does next. Stay tuned. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, Lauren, so we're back. Let's talk about what Lara Strong does after this dinner with Allison. Do you want to dig into this first? Yes. So Laris basically, so after Lionel tells, Viserys tells Lionel he can't resign his hand to the king. Like, no, I'm not going to let you do this. You've been a loyal hand to the king. So Lionel says, well, at least I need to escort Harwin back up to Hall. It's time he takes upon his proper role as Lord of Hall. Basically, he's suggesting Harwin needs to get married and start having some heirs. And so basically, Lionel and Harwin head back to Hall, which we all, of course, know is, is cursed. But uh, Laris takes it upon himself to um he finds some people in the dungeons of uh, king's landing cuts off their tongues and sends them to go set his family's house on fire so while lionel and harwin have arrived at heron hall they basically die horrifying deaths at the at laris's hand which i'm like this is brutal baby because you see like you know neither harwin nor lionel can escape and so, and, ba- and basically everyone sort of chalks it up to just the curse of Hall. But when Allison finds out about it, she's like, please tell me you didn't do this. Please tell me you didn't do this. And he's like, well, you know, yeah, of course I did. And you better pay me off for this because somebody's going to find out what I've been up to. Like, you know, <laughs> if they find out that the queen had something to do with killing the hand and, and Harwin strong, like, and we also know that like Renera does seem to be honestly, she seems to honestly love Harwin as well. And we haven't seen Renera's reaction to this yet. We just know that she's fled to Dragonstone because she just thinks it's safer for her children there. And she also doesn't want to, like, keep hearing the rumors, right? I think she mentions that. Yeah, she doesn't want to keep hearing the rumors. She just, she just, you know, she's she's the princess of Dragonstone. She's like, I'm going to go take up my castle. Thank you very much. And I'm not going to be around this woman anymore. And so, you know, basically, Allison is sort of realizing that these little meetings with Laris have now just left her very exposed to some really horrifying stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's also important to note that, you know, the reason Laris does this is because Allison really wants her father, Otto Hightower, back as Hand of the King. So she has at least someone who can be in her corner with her, kind of fighting all these battles on the small council. And Laris is like having the some of the best lines on this show so far. There's one line, the queen makes her wish. What servant of the realm would not rise to fulfill it? And then he has this other, almost like a monologue. I don't think it's that long of a dialogue but it's you know along the lines of what are children but a weakness a folly a futility through them you imagine you cheat the great darkness of its victory you persist forever in some form or another as if they will keep you from the dust but for them you surrender what you should not you may know what is the right thing to be done but love stays the hand love is a downfall 
best to make your way through life unencumbered. This guy is like Ramsey Bolton meets like Varys meets like, oh my <laughs> it's God. It's really complicated, dude. And I have to say, Matthew Needham, who's playing him, he is taking this role and running with it. Like, cause he's just like, you know, I know everyone's talking about Damon, but I was like, oh wow, he's doing a really good job with this character. Like I, I you know, I've been really impressed with his performance and just, you know, you're like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is who Littlefinger wish he was. You know, he, he was, he was like, you know, Littlefinger was always so obvious about his machinations. But this one, I was just like, oh, Laris, this one, he is effective, you know. So we talked a little bit about this sense of, you know, claustrophobia that Alicent is kind of feeling just like being at King's Landing, just alone, fighting this battle alone. And then you mentioned Rhaenyra in contrast. She's like, I'm going to get out of here. And just like, you know, she really is an ally. She's like, hey, Lanor, bring your lover. Like, who cares? She's just like, he can come. I, I don't care. You, you just have to come with me. Like, I can't do this by myself. You have to, you know. But it was also interesting, a moment between Rhaenyra and Lanor. It's after Lanor and Carl have been like drinking and pal around and they come back to Rhaenyra's chambers. She dismisses Carl and she basically has this moment that like, it felt to me like an echo almost of what she did with Kristen in the sense that, you know, when younger Rhaenyra tells Kristen, no, I'm not going to run away with you, but I want to be able to have sex with you whenever (laughs) I feel like it. And you can't leave the Kingsguard, that kind of thing. Lanor really wants to go back to battle He's like, I've I've done my duty for the past 10 years. I mean, technically, I don't know if that's true because he still has yet to father a child with Rhaenyra. So I don't know how true that is. But he has been playing the part in court and such. But she, in turn, is like, okay, so then as your future queen, I command you to stay with me. Which really felt like, you know, a conscious choice to kind of echo her previous relationship with Sir Kristen, even though I really appreciate, you know, Rhaenyra kind of looking out for Lanor in some respects, you know, bring your lover. We're all about love at Dragonstone. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> we can do what we want, you know? Yes. So now let's talk about another arc of this episode, which is Prince Damon Targaryen and Lena Valarian. They are currently in Pentos. They are now married after their little flirtation at Rhaenyra's wedding 10 years earlier. They have two children with a third on the way. A lot has happened. And just to, we're going to bring in the books here just because, you know, there is a lot that is kind of inferred, but isn't kind of explicitly laid out. So Damon and they're all in Pentos. Why are they in Pentos? So we know from the books that Damon failed to inherit Runestone after he killed Lady Rhea, which was something he had mentioned at the end of episode five. Instead, it passed to Lady Rhea's nephew, and Damon was no longer welcomed to the Vale, because I feel like everyone in the Vale were like, we know you killed her, so get the fuck out of here. Probably the correct reaction on that front. And then knowing that there wasn't, there weren't a lot of places where Damon actually was welcomed in Westeros, he went to Driftmark, and there he fell in love with Lady Lena Valarian. And Damon felt his brother would not be happy to hear about their marriage because in the book, he essentially killed another suitor in order to marry her. So instead, they've been off traveling 
They haven't been in Westeros for quite some time. They first went to Pentos and then around, you know, the surrounding areas. And now they're back in Pentos. So Lena could give birth to her children. And now she's about to give birth to her third. But they're all still kind of visitors at this point. Lauren, do you want to talk about like who the figures around them are and where we kind of are at this point in Westeros history in Pentos with a triarchy and all of that good goodness. So this is what is kind of interesting is like we know that Targaryens have a tendency to take refuge in Pentos because when Game of Thrones opened, that was where Daenerys and her brother Viserys were. They were hanging out in Pentos. They were sort of the honored guests of Lirio Mampatis. And, you know, that they, that they were sort of like being wined and dined and basically in the hopes that eventually they will return to power and, you know, remember who their friends were when everything was going down. So basically, Damon and Lena, they're basically dining, it seems like with the prince of the city or the prince of Pentos. And they're basically being kind of offered the world like you can have this, you know, you can live here in this, you know, in this property and this kind of stuff. And this is where we start to hear about what's going on with the stepstones and the triarchy and all this kind of stuff. And this is all starting to boil up again. And you can tell they've been here for a while. Damon seems to be, you know, he, he seems like he and Lena, they're, they're not super happy right now, but it seems like they've, they've had some kind of workable marriage. And, you know, with one of his children, he seems to be attentive with the one who's the dragon rider. He seems to be paying attention to the one who isn't the dragon rider, not so much. But it's it, very interesting to see Damon in this kind of like domestic situation where he has a wife who he seems to seems to respect in a way. And he has two daughters and and that kind of stuff. And but like, you know, Lena, she wants to return to Driftmark. She's like, I don't want to die the life of a of a fat country lady or like lord. She wants to she wants to die a, a die a dragon rider's death. And at this point, Lena is now a dragon rider. She is now uh, the rider of Vagar, which is one of the last dragons from the conquering of Westeros. She's this is the dragon that Visenya, Aegon the Conqueror's sister wife, used to ride. So Vagar is a very like riding Vagar is a big deal. This is like the version of being Balerion's rider for Viserys was like riding Vagar. And this dragon is massive, even when you compare it to Caraxes. Like when we saw them, they're sort of opened up where you, you see them both sort of flying over Pentos, sort of giving off a show for the people. And it seems like they have to do these like little aeronautics stunts to keep their, <laughs> keep themselves in bread and wine. And like Vagar is enormous. So it's kind of interesting to see where they are after 10 years but they're in but they're basically like they're still kind of just the guests of people like they they don't have their own place they don't she wants to go back to to driftmark she wants to have her children grow up where she did which totally understandable what did you think about this whole thing uh, well, i loved i mean i felt like a lot of this episode was about the relationships between parents and their children and i really liked watching the dynamics between damon and lena well mostly lena and her children reyna and bela I, I loved the scene in particular where lena goes to reyna who's holding an egg by the fireplace 
she is another dragonless dragon rider, essentially. Her egg has not hatched yet. And it was it really felt parallel to what Aemond Targaryen was saying about, you know, his own kind of obsession with getting a dragon. But those two parents address the situation very differently. Lena is all about love, and she and she just reminds her daughter, like, hey, like I wasn't paired with a dragon, and now look at me, I'm riding Vagar. There's more than one way to be bound to a dragon. And it was just really fascinating to me just to kind of see the very different dynamics, the way each set of parents kind of approach situations involving their children. And now Damon, I mean, he's, I mean, it seems like he is a good father. He's better than you would think he would have been. Like, you know, when he's sitting there trying to teach uh, Bela, like stuff like that, you're like, he's better. Like, I would not have thought he would have been good at all. But you're like, oh, there is a little bit of fatherly feeling here going on. So it's a little bit surprising. And by the end of this whole thing, you, you do get the sense that he did love Lena. Like, even through this whole process. I mean, there's even just the way he addresses her versus the way he addressed or not addressed (laughs) Lady Rhea is starkly different. But I want to talk about the death of Lena Valarian because... Oh, boy. I know. it's, It's a little bit different from the books. And there's... In the sense that, like, I don't think certain facts about why she kills herself are really kind of laid bare in this episode. It's more clear in the books, I felt. What did you feel like? I mean, it really just feels like she knew, she kind of knew she was doomed, and so she didn't want to die in the childbed. She she was just... And I thought it was... And th- this is interesting about the first time we saw this episode. This is where it was totally black and just said temporary v- VFX. So we just heard the, I, like, ha- heard the audio of what was happening, and I'm like oh, I guess she's asking Vagar to, like, cook her. And so, like, you just see her begging Vagar, and Vagar's just like, no? Like, and it takes a while before, like, Vagar really understands that, like, Lena is in dire, dire need. She is not going to survive. And so this is this is how she wants to die with some kind of sense of honor as a dragon rider. Like, the, like she, I think Lena thinks that this is this is a, a way to die with honor and, and, you know, not just being cut open. And I thought it was interesting that Damon did not agree to cut her open like Viserys did. He just was like, no, you know, and so Lena actually had some agency in how she died. And, you know, I thought it was quite moving, but I'm like, this series is really giving a people a lot of traumatic versions of birth here. It's just like glad for modern medicine, man. I know it's, it's hard to watch, but there are certain things that I felt just personally that were a little bit more clear in the book or in fire and blood, I should say. So she miscarries, but she, she does give birth to a son, but that son is very deformed and dies very soon after leaving the womb. And so she is grieving. Like that's a big part of like why she just decides to kill herself. But then she also, like, makes a very conscious choice, like you're talking about. She's lying on her deathbed, essentially. She knows she's going to die, but instead she wants her final moment to be riding Vagar in the sky. Yeah, so she's trying to get to Vagar, you know, when she sort of collapses. And I think that's important to note, because I I don't know that on her way to Vagar... She was, oh, I don't know. Maybe this is just in the context of the book specifically and not the show. But in the book, she's not intending to kill herself. She really wants to reach Vagar, but she physically can't. She like collapses in front of her and can't climb up. But in the show, I don't know if that's kind of her motivation in this moment. I just thought it was interesting how they decided to kind of approach that. 
you know, aspect of it. But it, I mean, they did, I think the show made it very clear, like this was her choice and that this was what she, you know, she knew she was doomed and she just, you know, and I think for her, a death by Vagar, death by fire was more, almost like she felt it was more honorable to the woman she was than just dying in the child bed. And, you know, it's a memorable death, but good. So now let's switch to the portion of the podcast where we're going to talk about House of the Dragon in relation to Fire and Blood, George R. R. Martin's books, get a little bit more spoilery. If we want to, we don't have to, but fair warning to anyone listening. In what ways, Lauren, did the show clarify certain things about the events of Fire and Blood or change them kind of completely for this adaptation that you found interesting. I mean, it definitely clarified what Laris was up to the entire time, but it did, it did, you know, there was the suggestion in the book that Harwin was really the father of Rhaenyra's kids. And this is like, oh yeah, he really is. Like just the way that they were filming the shots, the way that Harwin and Rhaenyra were interacting. Like you're like, this is very, very clear that these are his children. And just even the way like, you know, he was able to have some kind of fatherly interaction with his children. It's not like he was standing off afar. It was like they, they knew that, you know, he was like a presence in their lives. And then other things, it's like, you know, it sort of clarified what, what had happened with the Damon and the spirit, obviously Lena, we just talked about her death and also kind of just like clarified about what Alicent had been sort of been up to and how she's just kind of getting poison in her ears from both Kristen and from Laris the entire time. Like there's no one sitting here down going, listen, lady, you've just got to get over this. Like you just need to put this aside and like, why don't you go do a project somewhere in King's Landing? The peasants could use some work. She's like, she's so like focused and internal and just like chewing over this, like this grievance she has toward Rhaenyra that she's, she's just kind of eating away at herself. Well, maybe if Game of Thrones stopped killing all of the gay people, she would have a gay best friend to be like, (laughs) sit her down and be like, you are crazy. We need to talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) The biggest change from the book that, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily took issue with it, but it it was the relationship between Lena and Rhaenyra. Oh yeah. That's, I really missed that. I kind of, I really wish we got to see that. Like, cause they were, they were supposed to be really good friends and, you know, I think that would have been really good to see. So I did miss, miss that kind of sense of these, this, like these, this cup, these two couples, like, you know, being a part of each other's lives. Yeah, they were, they were really close friends to the point where Rhaenyra was flying to see Lena all the time at Driftmark as she was like preparing to give birth. Mm-hmm. And Rhaenyra was reportedly devastated when Lena died. And it also, you know, I, I, there, after sort of the death of Joffrey, which I know is sort of, you know, a, a big plot point in sort of the progression of Fire and Blood that they adapted for the show. But, you know, we want more gay people. Why can't we have more gay people? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought like one of the, you know, it, we talk about this a lot. The fact that fire and blood is written from like dueling sources of information. And so you don't really know what's fact and what's fiction, but you have a lot of theories after you read it. And one theory that I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, Oh, maybe Rhaenyra and Lena are developing more than just kind of a close friendship. Maybe they're developing a romance. And I I, I thought there were a lot of different directions like to be had or like to go in with that kind of relationship specifically. Like is maybe Rhaenyra is uh, like 
getting close to Lena because she secretly loves her uncle Damon. Like there's so many like different ways into that that I felt could really be cool to see it flesh out on screen. But I mean, they don't even have a relationship at all in the show. No, basically not. There was like one scene of them, like when she greeted Elena, greeted Rhaenyra at, at, at uh, Driftmark. And the thing is, it's also like you get the sense of like of all of these these two couples being around them all the time. It's kind of like this is when you know after you know Lena's death and what happens to Lenor, which is coming. That Damon kind of makes his move and uses that closeness to you know where they you know they're eventually going to be married to each other. So it's kind of interesting that we kind of miss that, and that's I, I think something that I do miss about all of these time jumps is that you're missing all of this texture that uh, you know a slower pace might have given you like you're you're missing like you know they could have started this like five years like there could have been a five-year jump and you know you could have seen a little bit more because i'm kind of i'm like i'm like so has rainier just not seen damon for 10 years that's kind of a curious like i'm question about that because he he seems to know that her children don't look like lanor but you know so i am kind of curious about that kind of like those aspects of it. We also meet another one of our boo-boo babies and another <laughs> dragon besides Vagar. We see Vermax. Yes, a very small Vermax, but still capable of uh, shish kebabbing a sheep. So, And this is Jace's dragon, who he'll eventually mount when both of them are a little bit older. And then there's another dragon sort of in the pits of the dragon pit. I couldn't really figure out which dragon that was? The only thing I thought was perhaps it was Cyrax because, you know, Cyrax taking a dislike to Aemon would seem to like, you know, Rhaenyra's dragon taking a dislike to Aemon seems like that would be textural. But it's like, I really couldn't tell which dragon this was. And I know that there's a ton of dragons in the dragon pit at this point in time. So, and, and I, I did think that scene was effective. And I, and I did like the training scene where you could really see like, this was a whole practice that, you know, each Targaryen went through was like, they went through they're training in the dragon print and it's not like this just naturally happened. They were taught how to do this. And it was like, kind of like training a dog, but just with a dragon, you know, and the handlers would kind of go with, go through them and teach them how to properly handle their dragon, you know, train their dragon. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I really was fascinated by that. Yeah. It, Cause also in the books, I believe after the death of Lena, Amon kind of resolves to, claim Vagar. But of course, in the context of this show, that's not Vagar. So I, I mean, I was just kind of left puzzled. And I'm like, who is this dragon? I really want to know because as we talk about all the time, we want to see more dragons. The dragons is in the title of this show. Let's see Where more dragons. dragons. Let's do it. <laughs> Where are my dragons? <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, are there any kind of like fun Easter eggs, lines of dialogue, sigils that kind of stuck out in your mind? One thing that really popped out at me is when they were having, when Allison was having that scene with Helena and they were talking about Eamon being a dragon writer. Helena says very quietly, he's going to have to lose an eye to do this. And that's like a very famous thing. Whereas like Eamon becomes a dragon writer, but he also loses his eye at the same time. So that was like, that was just a kind of like a very quiet little, like, oh, she's prophetic, I see, you know? And that that was just, I like that little scene. So that was the one that kind of really popped out for me in terms of, of this episode. Anything for you? A couple of things. Uh, as Rhaenyra and Lenor are kind of, doing their march towards the queen's chambers of the 
beginning of this episode, they encounter Lord Caswell. And he offers, you know, if I might be of service, let me know. And Rhaenyra replies, the day may come, my lord. And if you've read Fire and Blood, Caswell is one of the figures who ends up siding with Rhaenyra during the Dance of the Dragons. So that was kind of fun. There was also a moment when Viserys gazes upon Joffrey, baby Joffrey, for the first time. And he says something to the effect of, I think he has his father's nose. (laughs) Which I thought was interesting because in the book, because, you know, race doesn't really factor into the questions of legitimacy in the book, uh, Valarian's... And the book are like, you know, silver haired, purple eyes, that kind of thing. Yeah, they look very much like Targaryens. Yeah, and it's more like the the questions of illegitimacy come up over like hair color and like things like that. But one thing that is mentioned in the book is that like the children of Harwin Strong have like pug noses. So I thought that was like a little fun nod to the book where it's like, oh, you, you know, your son has his father's nose. I also liked when Allison was like, "We may, maybe one time you'll get a child that looks like him because that was straight out of the novel as well. So when she said that, I was just like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that was straight out of the novel. So I like that one. Yeah, just lots of foreshadowing in this episode. Another line, Sir Kristen Cole tells Harwin Strong during the kind of the, before, you know, Harwin beats the crap out of them. Harwin's like, hey, like, you're not being fair. Like, why are you pitting Aegon, who's much bigger than Jace, against him? And Sir Kristen says something along the lines of, you know, when steel is drawn, a fair match isn't something anyone should expect. So it's just a lot of these very, very juicy lines that like really pack a punch and are really kind of foreshadowing a lot of things to come. But personally, I don't know. I just, I loved Emma... I loved Olivia in this role. Oh, they were they were so good. I like I really did think like this episode almost like, oh, we are off to the races. Like I, I was really I was really excited to see them well play their roles and play them so well. What are you most excited about moving forward from this point in the show? I'm kind of excited to see Damon and, and uh Rhaenyra kind of their union of chaos starting like i'm i'm excited to see that i'm I'm kind of just excited to see emma darcy and matt smith and what their energy is like together so i'm, I'm very interested about that this episode really felt even like more like a tonal shift i don't know it, it brought up a lot of the same like excitement the same feelings i had watching the original game of thrones a lot of courtroom intrigue like seeing the puppet masters puppeteering behind the curtains, all of that goodness was front and center in this episode. I just want more of it. I, I'm ready for all of these people to just throw down and come to blows. You know, as as tragic as it probably will be. <laughs> We're going to get a lot more dragons, so that's good, you know. Well, Lauren, thank you so much again for joining me on this episode of West of Westeros. I, I can't wait to talk about the next episode. I, haven't, oh, I can't wait to see it. We haven't even seen this one, so <laughs> we have no idea what this one's going to be like, so I'm really excited about that. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, I'll be sharing my interview with Emma Darcy, who plays Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. Stay tuned. Yeah, so when I was on set, I got the impression that filming this show felt more like running a marathon versus a sprint. 
I mean, how do you feel now? Like, what have you been up to since this whole thing actually wrapped? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. It was long, wasn't it? It was long. We did that for a long time. People really gave a chunk of their life happily to uh, to make this thing. Honestly, I've I've been doing so much nothing. It's magic. I yeah, I I really thought that my identity relied on being a conscientious worker and actually it turns out I love to do very little I like to ride my bike and swim outdoors and I think I've regressed actually I think I'm I think I'm having a second adolescent um, <laughs> and that largely involves avoiding having to do things yeah yeah it's lovely it's so funny. I was talking to um, Eve recently and she was like, oh, yeah, I've been in Italy just like lounging about. Have you just been in the UK or do you do some traveling, too? I did do a bit of traveling. I had some friends who moved to various places on the continent during the pandemic and then couldn't visit because of COVID and then couldn't visit because we were working. So I sort of finally connected with those people. I spent a bit of time in Sicily. Wow, wow, wow. That's my place. Uh, yeah. That's the Ionian Sea was made for me. Yeah, so no, it's been really nice. Yeah. I know you said previously that you've tried to sort of disregard all of like the fandom that kind of comes with Game of Thrones. But I got to say, I recently saw a photo of your first action figure as Rhaenyra. Oh, I oh mean, my does, God. Does I haven't it, seen this. Yeah, I, it's one is a Funko Pop that they make for the line. I mean, does it feel cool that like, you get your own action figure. <laughs> I mean, that is cool, right? I was pretty blown away when I discovered I had an emoji on Twitter. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's very surreal. I think it doesn't feel particularly real to me yet, would be my honest answer. But I would like to own an action figure. <laughs> How do I get one of those? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I at least saw a photo. I was like, how do we order these? <laughs> yeah, because that would be an easy Christmas present. I'll do that for everyone. And that's really, that would really, well, that would, that would solve one, that would solve 2022. And then, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you remember going sort of all the way back to the very beginning of your experience, the moment when you first found out about the opportunity to audition for this show? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I was really naive. I, I had, I haven't yet discovered the skill of reading between the lines on audition mailouts that are untitled. So I got a set of, they, they weren't sides from the show. They were made up. They sort of had like a, they felt that they were from the fantasy genre because security is so tight, obviously, on the show. Sure. And I fully thought, oh, it's like a Game of Thrones ripoff. And yeah, I did like a, <laughs> I did like a very speedy audition tape, middle of the pandemic, iPhone rested against a packet of crisps, sent that off and thought, well, I'll never hear from that again. And then it was after that that I <laughs> was let in on what the project was and that it was, in fact, the Game of Thrones prequel and that it was HBO. And then I sort of lived as Rhaenyra for about three months because we did... I did rounds and rounds of self-tapes. And somewhere in the midst of that, I got on a Zoom call with Miguel and Ryan. 
And Miguel asked me if I had a wig. And I said, do I look like a person who owns a wig? And this is mid-pandemic, where the only things that are open are supermarkets. But all I had was I had some weft, like some hair extensions, basically, left over from a job. No way of attaching them to me. No idea how to do that. And for 24 hours, me and my partner just tried. And I mean that word. I can't put more emphasis behind that word. We tried really hard. And we would send photos to Miguel. And he and we thought we'd cracked it. And he said, uh, can you keep trying? And we kept trying until we found something that sort of gave me the illusion I had long hair. And then every time we taped after that, I would sit in front of the telly and my partner would do my hair extensions for an hour and a half before we taped anything. Anyway, suffice to say, like, Rhaenyra was, like, really big in our house for at least three months of the pandemic before I got an offer. How did you get the hair extensions to stick? I mean, did your partner kind of like weave it into like the strands or? It's a great question, Nick. Um, (laughs) What we ended up buying was a thing called wig grips and we had to, we hot glued the wet, no idea if like there there are like hair and makeup artists turning in their grave. We hot glued these hair extensions to these wig grips. My hair was about as long as it is now, really hard. Yeah, it was a long process. I'm very, very, I have, I have a, yeah, I owe my partner a great debt. Oh my god, that's so funny. I, it's so, I feel like I'm in a wig bubble almost in New York because I feel like all of my friends have wigs. So whenever yeah. we like go out for Pride or anything, I'm like whip out the wigs. But so you were saying like you really couldn't find a wig. That's crazy. I just wouldn't have known where to go, who to ask. I was like an unemployed person in a pandemic in a living room was sort of where I was positioned. Yeah, I just didn't know who to go to. But it's nice. Me and my partner both come from theatre and I don't know, we're we're good at making the best of a bad situation and for finding the answer sort of with the resources at hand. No, I love that. You got you got to be able to pivot. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) babe it's time to pivot (laughs) (laughs) well this show it definitely feels like something we've never seen from you before in your career certainly like a brand new high fantasy genre I mean at the time that this opportunity came along were you looking for something completely different like a completely new challenge yes I was also like looking for work (laughs) But, uh, but let me contextualize again we're in the pandemic everyone I know in the industry had basically lost everything so it was a really it was a really weird time but yeah I mean yes I guess I'm always probably looking for something that invites me to explore like a different a different aspect of myself and then again this was definitely like a curveball I didn't I'm not sure that any of the actors on this show in a magical way saw this coming down the road for them yeah I think part of the magic of the last year and a half is yeah who knew (laughs) who knew I know It's funny. I've I've talked to a lot of actors who are based in the UK and in Ireland, and I get the impression that the first Game of Thrones series really dominated the acting industry there for a very long time, where like almost everybody and their mothers and fathers auditioned (laughs) at some point for it. I mean, did you audition for the first Game of Thrones at all? No, I was very unsuccessful back then, Nick. I wouldn't have got in the door. No, no, uh, no. It was before my time a bit. Yeah. (laughs) So what was sort of your introduction like into this world? I mean, obviously it 
comes with such a deep mythology. I mean, talking with Ryan and Miguel, they are like both walking encyclopedias for this yeah. world. I mean, how did you kind of wrap your head around everything that you were dealing with? Great question. I mean, like, I think like multiple ways at once in terms of like the world more broadly, we have this amazing tool called, called the Game of Thrones. And, uh, <laughs> and I spent a lot of time in it during the pandemic watching 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 just to like even though you know that I'm talking about a storyline that's in the future like in relation to House of the Dragon but even so just so good to just like keep up that sort of peripheral cognitive awareness of place and location and geography and families and houses and allies so that and then simultaneously I spent a lot of time pre-shooting with the, obviously with the screenplays for House of the Dragon. And I obviously play Rhaenyra as, as an older character, but really like all the way through from ep one to ep 10, I would sort of just go, I would read from one to 10 and I'd go back to the beginning and I end up with like a lot of workbooks and I spend a lot of time just trying to essentially translate events from the screenplay into the written from the perspective of the character just so that you're starting to like embed that stuff so that it just sort of becomes sedimentary rock by the time you're filming stuff further down the line actually an, a, another like lovely aspect of that is I mean I had so many conversations with Miguel and Ryan mm. all the way through both about character and about interrelationships and about the world and they were so brilliant also about feeding in just like small thoughts and concepts and ideas from other actors so that you're already starting to get a, a much more three-dimensional sense of, even before you meet the actor playing the character, yeah, of the people that you've met on the page. So like beautiful, like cross-fertilization, I think. Olivia mentioned that you both went to dinner at, with Ryan and Miguel. What do you remember from that dinner? Honestly, I don't remember very much. I think I was so adrenalized. The main thing that I remember was that, I'm speaking for myself here, I don't know what Liv would say, but I think I fell in love with her in about 45 seconds and then, well, probably worked quite hard to cover that. <laughs> uh, it was really nice. I, You know those chance meetings that happen where... There's a familiarity. I really felt that with Liv. It was lovely. And it was it was like we had the right language to speak to each other immediately. And that doesn't always happen. And I speak in a very convoluted way. So it, that was beautiful. And otherwise, it was sort of the first moment where I was like, oh, Christ, man, this might actually happen. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Because we all got our offers sort of having never met anyone in person because it was COVID and you protocol was so tight. So it was also the first time of like, well, I hadn't met anyone new for about a year. Like it was a really, really surreal evening. Was there a specific moment where it did feel real? Like it felt like the show was not just something like theoretical that you were working yeah. on, but it was like actually happening. I actually reckon that that came once we were about a month in. I think it, I think it took like tiredness and fatigue for me to know that this was actually happening. And I think after about a month, a month of that marathon, I was like, oh, wow, this seems, it seems quite likely this is in fact my job. And I'm delighted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm curious what your um, biggest questions were for Ryan and Miguel after you got the role, either about the world itself or specifically about Rhaenyra. I think maybe something to do with how do we make sure kind of throughout the series, but also at the very beginning, that this character who, as a result of 
patriarchal constraints, essentially doesn't have power. They have privilege, but they don't have power. How do we make sure that they are simultaneously in command as a protagonist? And this is something that I know that they both care about really deeply. It's it's one thing to put two women in two major roles in a series like this, to have two female characters in the centre of a series like this. But it's, a, it's another when necessarily they are positioned within a patriarchy. And how do, you, how do we pay attention to them at least seeking command of their own life? And I think that's something that we watched. We kept like a close eye on all the way through the series. Yeah, obviously that relationship between Rainier and Allison is just so crucial to the beating heart of this show. Did did you and Olivia work really closely to figure out what that relationship would feel like? Or was it important for both of you to come independently to that relationship? Honestly, I think a bit of both. I think it really helps that I really like her. <laughs> it is great. So, I mean, there's a, there's, so there's a ground there in that we are really good friends and I adore her. A really nice thing, we, we, we had rehearsal time at the start of this whole process, which again is such a privilege and it's so unusual to have time like that. And it allowed me and Olivia to, obviously we both play the older version of the character, but just to play some earlier moments and some of them also just improved, but sort of hypothesized moments from their adolescence, mm-hmm. just to lean into that kind of erotic adolescent zone of female friendship. Which was nice because then, yeah, again, that that sort of sits, stays in the body somewhere. And then, honestly, I spent a lot of time on set just going like, man, she's so good. <laughs> um, what a privilege. We really early on, maybe at the end of even like the first week of shooting or something, I was we were doing a really big scene and I and the camera wasn't on me. So I was literally in my own clothes and I was giving lines to Olivia and to Paddy. And I was having an out-of-body experience. I mean, I felt that I I really felt that I didn't mind if the camera never turned around. It's so astonishing to meet actors who are so present, so committed, so brilliant, <laughs> and to be a line reader for them. Well, I'm going to throw some compliments back at you because I did, I got to see, I think it was either episode seven or episode eight oh. with you, you and Matt on Dragonstone. Rhaenyra gets like the letter about Vaymond questioning the legitimacy of her son. I haven't seen that. <laughs> I know I was off in the shadows scribbling in my notebook, but it was so cool to watch you and Matt work. And like every single take, both of you had just very like subtle nuances, but like evoking very different energies. And it was so impressive to watch. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about just that atmosphere and the environment that you cultivated with each other as actors? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I've like said this before elsewhere, but I, I really credit Matt with like teaching me about freedom on screen bless him I love him he's so uh he just wants the work to live um he doesn't want to know what's going to happen he wants it to be live he wants to be surprised he wants to surprise you he wants to be out of control I mean like when yeah uh, like one of the privileges of being on a show this big is that we have a lot more time and you know if you and I are doing two and a half pages of dialogue We've probably got the whole day. So you don't have to turn up and show your homework. You can turn up and try to just be and be present on set and discover what happens through the process of doing. I learned all of that via Matt. And the delight for me is that 
once I understood what he wanted as an actor, which is the same as what he gives, he's so generous and, mm. you know, the camera's on you and he will still just give you something that's a slight curveball. And as soon as I understood that that's also what he wants, that's what he wants to receive. It's just such a joy because you know how to gift to someone suddenly. It's like you can give the perfect, the perfect present. And as soon as you do something that's just a little bit left of center, he's just right there. And he's just a light. And I love working with him. And I hope we get to do more of it. Well, obviously, you have, you know, so much material that you could potentially draw from. I mean, for you, what is useful to you to keep with you as source material or as notes? And what is what do you kind of discard sort of in the process? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So as I said, like I spend a lot of time with the screenplays and I think through that process, I do end up with sort of pull quotes that become kind of key sentences or like anchor points mm, yeah. throughout the series. Yeah. Quite a like sort of boring and obvious thing to say, but discovering what the kind of great underlying fear is and trying to track actually patterns of behavior, I find really, really useful. I think without yeah, going into detail, but I think Rhaenyra has a real history of abandonment. I think it's something that keeps happening. And I think she's also very much culpable in that abandonment. And she really presses relationships, often to the point where they cannot continue. <laughs> and then she fulfills the prophecy again. So yeah, I think, yeah, I think I look for quotes that are anchors and and patterns of behavior. Something that you mentioned on set that I found so interesting was how you really gravitated to the character of Rhaenyra as sort of an exploration on gender. And it made me like really, or in, like specifically like gender roles. And it made me like really re-examine that character in Fire and Blood. How do you feel like specifically or as specific as you want to get? Because obviously spoilers, but what interests you about the idea of gender and the character of Rhaenyra? I think she's... I think she's a young woman who is kind of obsessed with masculinity. And that's because for her, masculinity or maleness equates to freedom. I think she is a person who feels at odds with the way that she is read by the world. Even this label, the realm's delight, which implies a passivity being the object of other people's ogling. I think she's always looking to, I think she's a person who necessarily lives with an absence. It's like she has a doppelganger. The doppelganger is Rhaenyra born male who has access to all the things that she craves and, and feels to be hers. This is the thing. And I, I suppose for myself, I, that's something that I feel is resonant for me or it was for me as a child. And, and I think like, you know, she has this amazing connection with her uncle, Damon, and they, in some way, they're sort of of the same fabric. And yet the rules are completely different. So, yeah, I think like necessarily, she, I, like I think to say she's gender questioning would be too extreme because the language doesn't exist. But I think she is someone who's pushing at the edges of womanhood and has a really like decisive interrogative eye for how gender affects power, affects how one may occupy space, affects even the right to construct one's life. And I think that's really, I think, basically the interaction or, uh, or the continued consolidation of male power and patriarchy is probably what really excited me about the script when I first read it, because the best way in the world, <laughs> we're still picking men to lead. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Yeah. I know it's, it's, I, I was talking with Eve and she talks about her fantastic line that we kind of hear in the trailers and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it's something along the lines of men would sooner put the realm to the torch than let a woman ascend the iron throne. And for her, she felt like that was sort of the crux of this entire show. Do you feel similarly? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and like fundamentally it's about othering, right? It's like, and, and what's so exciting is we understand this process. We understand how othering works. We see it every day. We see it in 2022. And simultaneously, Miguel and Ryan and the rest of the team have created a program where you have someone who is fundamentally othered in a position of power, but you tell the story from their perspective. And that feels like really unusual to me. And how do you convince an electorate that you're not other? This is the question. I think, I mean, that's, that's what interests me, I think. How do you convince people that you're the same? How do you do that? When the, when the whole system is built on the belief and, and the right, the rule that you are not the same. Do you feel House of the Dragon has an answer for that? No, uh, <laughs> but I think it's like, but I think it's investigating that corner. And therefore, it's really important that it tells its story from the perspective of two women. I also adore the fact that Rhaenyra is a dragon rider. It's just yeah. it, it, the, the relationship between the dragon and the dragon rider is so fascinating to me. Like from the moment both are born to like the shared like character traits that some of them share with each other. I mean, did you get to see illustrations or concept art of Cyrax when you were kind of going through this process? Yeah, I did. In fact, there's an amazing, there was an amazing wall in the production office where all of the like dragons, all of the visualizations of the dragons were printed out on A3 paper, but they were all to scale. So you could see by comparison how big Vagar is, for example. Stunning. And obviously House of the Dragon is set in a time where it's like a time of dragons and, and like power consolidated by dragons. And therefore you've got like all this beautiful riding gear. You know, there's a whole in, there's a whole leather industry <laughs> that surrounds it. So you've got these like beautiful saddles, and I think for Rhaenyra, actually, sort of coming back to your last question, I think dragon riding is exactly one of those prongs that allows her to push at a sort of male freedom, like a masculine freedom. Her uncle again is this famed dragon rider and I think it's like an emblem of identity for her so it's almost sort of well my interpretation at least is like it's both a literal and sort of metaphorical symbol of power like who holds the power it feels like Rhaenyra on some level does have some power but as you said it's all about kind of agency and patriarchy and the system yeah did hearing just about the description of Cyrax specifically I mean we we know about Vagar and like I feel like it's very appropriate that Damon rides <laughs> Vagar or, um, or uh, my, I need all of my flashcards. I need to like, but like just did hearing sort of the description of Rhaenyra's dragon, did that affect your approach to the character or made you think of her in a different light? I think what it made me reflect on was that Rhaenyra is like running on humming with sort of Targaryen fire. I think that's what it made me think about. And what does it mean if fire is your ally? Fire is this like 
volatile thing that is hard to control that is sort of hypnotic that is sort of that is beautiful that like that is both like an agent of like terror but also a kind of agent of transmutation it functions by destruction so that from like the ashes something new can exist and I think I think my main that's sort of where my area of reflection was like what is it to live with all of that inside you and when do you have to dampen that and when do you learn to trust that ultimately she has to learn that that's like a pretty fundamental part of her survival. But again, hard to bring a fire into a council chamber. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. <laughs> I know Cyrex can't really sit in the corner <laughs> and no. chime in on no. diplomacy. Walk in Rhaenyra, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. It was really quite, quite incredible. I saw the buck that production made for all of dragon riding. I'd only heard about that stage, like about, like, I think they created it for the Mandalorian or something like that, but I've never actually <laughs> seen it in action. I mean, what was it? What was that experience like? Yeah, that's unbelievable, right? So for people who don't know, like, so the volume stage is like a wraparound LED screen. So instead of green screen or blue screen, it's sort of all there and it's so digital game landscape that is connected to the camera so it moves as the camera does per perspectively. I mean, surreal. The Buck is one of the most fun rides I have ever been on. Um, that is so good to hear. It looked like so much fun, but they were like, you cannot ride it. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I, all I can say, all I can do is apologize because actually I got off that Buck and I said every member of production should be allowed to go. We need to do time slots. Uh, there needs to be a sign-up sheet. Honestly, it's like giddy making. Like I had to actively wipe the smile off my face. It's it's like pure play. You can't, you can't not give in to it's it's like I don't know pretending your push bike's a horse it's like incredibly incredibly seductive and exciting really exciting yeah and actually maybe that was one of those moments of being like wow we're we're really like making the house of the dragon pretty cool <laughs> like yeah. this, is, this is yeah this is really happening I imagine it must have been helpful to having that imagery there projected on the screen versus like, here's a tennis ball and pretend it's a dragon kind of thing. I feel very lucky because I realized that, what, like sort of 10 minutes ago, we would all have been with tennis balls for 11 months. It's also extraordinary because it means you can film at twilight for 15 hours a day. So it is like, it's like an, it's extraordinary what it allows you to do. I mean, it is just fundamentally nicer to, you know, be able to see something. I had a really nice chat actually with one of the directors just about, so like suddenly you have ultimate control, right? Like you can put the sun in the perfect position for a frame. And normally like perfection is your, is your North star and you can't achieve it, but it's the thing you aim at. But if you, but suddenly you can have that thing but we maybe start to not believe it because it's almost somehow it's aesthetically too right or it moves into like uncanniness. So what, what is your North Star when you can have ultimate control? I think it's like such an interesting question, which is like a new question because this is really new technology. That's so interesting because I feel like in a way you're also describing what House of the Dragon is about and like control and power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all connected. I love it. Connected. <laughs> deeply relevant. It sounded like I went off on one. It's deeply relevant. <laughs> <laughs> you're just so engrossed in the material you just naturally talk about. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I remember being on set and chatting with Miguel and I mean, both 
him and Ryan know so much about the world of Game of Thrones that blew my mind. But Miguel specifically seems like he knows everything there is to know about dragons, how dragons work, the science behind the dragons. It, it blew my mind. I mean, given the fact that dragons are so crucial to the setting of the story and also, you know, with Cyrax and Rhaenyra, I mean, did Miguel just kind of talk your ear off about everything to do with dragons. <laughs> yeah, he has a Lego dragon in his house. It's really great. Yeah, no, yes, he did. I don't even know what to add to that, but yeah, he did. He did. And I and his his excitement and affection for every single one is is infectious. <laughs> Oh my God, I love that so much. There are, I mean, aside from sort of, you know, the dragon element, there are so many interesting character dynamics. I'll I'll kind of defer to you about what you feel comfortable talking about specifics wise. But first, I mean, sort of when we think about the agency and the privilege that Rhaenyra does get, I mean, it goes back to her father and her father's love of her. What was sort of your approach to that relationship with Patty and sort of cultivating that? Yeah, I think what's interesting about Rhaenyra and Viserys is that they're like very similarly flawed. Both of them have a huge capacity for stubbornness. They're both terrible communicators. They both tend to sort of recede when something is difficult or problematic. And they both do it and they do it at each other. And and so whilst simultaneously they're being at this deep love and desire for unification. So they're sort of, they spend a lot of time at an impasse. I really think some talking therapy would do like, would do worlds for their relationship because they have to verbalize and yet neither will this sort of stubborn refusal to come and uh, seek reconciliation whilst craving it. I think that, I mean, I think that's what I found with Paddy is this like, a real push-pull of like actually having such simple needs. I want you to love me. I want you to be proud of me. I want you to show up for me, but not being able to ask for any of them and instead returning to something bitter. They spend a lot of time at an impasse. And I think even in dialogue, you can sort of feel that impasse. It's also so interesting to me that a character like Rhaenys is sort of lurking about and kind of the periphery of this. It was so cool to watch that dynamic in the trailer. I couldn't really tell if Rhaenys was a mentor to Rhaenyra or maybe like, I I see Rhaenyra like side-eyeing her almost. I, I was curious how you sort of saw that relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because... Rhaenys went on this path before Rhaenyra did. Rhaenys is very aware of how brutally the kingdom will shaft a woman. And you can have all of the emblems of legitimacy about you. I don't know that Rhaenyra always wants to hear that advice, but simultaneously, I think it's like undeniable that she's a really important figure. Again, there's there's no other woman to look to here. And that, again, is sort of the reality we live in. We have, there are very few role models in those powerful positions. And Rhaenys felt the full power of patriarchal consolidation of male power. This is a little bit of a side note, but I, I'm sort of learning the pronunciations, the proper <laughs> pronunciations of things as I'm going through this process. And I, when I interviewed Eve, I accidentally said Rainis instead of Rainies, And she just cackled and like couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> was, was there like a specific like pronunciation that you're like, 
that is completely not what I thought that was. Oh, I mean, there have been so many. I mean, I didn't know how to say my own name for like, well, for several months. Actually, I was in ADR literally two days ago and I, there was a new line and I, I, I had to say one of the dragon's names and then I was immediately corrected by someone in the sound booth and I, I felt very undermined there. <laughs> Yes, should have known that. That's why I need all my flashcards. I'm going to have to go through yeah. them before Comic-Con again. Just be like, yeah. drill them. Drill them. <laughs> you got to drill them. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have so many more questions for you, but I feel like they will veer into the realm of spoilers. So I'm going to make this next one my last question. My favorite thing being on set, it wasn't just seeing the Iron Throne, but it was seeing the sign next to the Iron Throne that was like warning fear of impalement or something <laughs> like that. And Miguel was like, yeah, like people kind of maybe cut themselves on it. Like what what was your experience like maneuvering around that set? <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. I didn't go near that chair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it looks um, very imposing. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Oh, man, it looks so good. That's an amazing room. And and actually, we were there right... Yeah, I can't say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, I was really late to finally encounter the throne room, just like shooting order or whatever. Maybe that was like the final moment of the reality of making House of the Dragon. It was like... Oh, yeah, <laughs> there it is. And it's got a real warning sign on it. Yeah. What I would say is, like, it's all a lot hairier if you're wearing, like, a heavy dress and several underskirt. That would be my warning to you for future. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, uh, Emma, thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. So nice to chat to you again. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.